And let's pray. Father in heaven, man, I am not qualified to talk on this subject tonight. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm just really nervous. And um, I pray for these students. I pray for myself. I pray that we would hear from you, King Jesus. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be so present, so palpable, so at work here tonight that we would leave changed. That you would actually, that the gospel would be powerful enough to change us because we long to be made more like you. We long to be made more sexually whole, whatever that means and whatever context that, that is for us tonight. Uh, and so be here, be at work. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Um, one of the things I've been saying this entire semester is uh, a lot of this content is not my own. I stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, other RUF campus ministers who have also talked about sex. Uh, Richie Sessions, Brian Sorgenfry, Sammy Rhodes, Matt Howe. Just want to put that out there. It's good to cite your sources. Um, and the first thing I want to say before I talk about sex is, y'all, I know there's a lot of trauma in this room. I know there's a lot of trauma in this room in regards to sex. Um, I can't imagine what that's got to be like. Uh, and I just, I think it's awesome that you're here. I'm so grateful. Um, in the same vein, like, as much as I, I don't want to bring up wounds tonight, I can't, I can't promise that. I, I don't know your story. I know we're talking about sex. I can't, I can't promise that. And so if I say something tonight, um, especially as a man in authority, uh, that belittles you or makes you feel dirty, I just want to offer my deepest apology on the front end. That's not my intention whatsoever. My intention is this. My intention simply is to, to present the beautiful view of sex that God has given to us in the Bible and to offer healing for those who are sexually wounded or, or broken. Uh, and guess what, y'all? That's all of us tonight. Every single one of you is, is a sexual sinner, and that includes me, too. I, like, I have to confess that last part to y'all like right up front. Because no part of tonight is me patronizing you, looking down my nose at you, or scoffing at you. Um, if you've struggled, I get you. If you failed, I, I get you. Um, my story is your story. Like, I was first exposed to pornography in middle school at a sleepover at a friend's house. I know a lot of y'all were exposed to it even earlier than that. I've done things sexually in college, like, before I was married that I'm not proud of. My point is, we all commit sexual sin. Even if you're not a Christian, right, and sin seems like this antiquated category to you, the reason why, like, I, I know you still believe, like, sin is a reality is because you lock your doors in. And what I mean by this, is, right, is that, like, you all acknowledge a reality where people are hurt by other people. Right? Otherwise, like, forget locks. I'm saying that, like, sin is a reality. It is the reality that human beings are turned in on themselves. So instead of, like, blessing others, right, we naturally do what is selfish. Even if that is at the expense of others. 
And so side note, like definitions are going to be really important tonight, right? I, I don't want to assume we're all on the same page when it comes to definitions. And so there you go, sin, right? That's why when I say we're sexual sinners, I'm saying we all naturally view sex through the realm of, well, what can I get from me? How can it, like, I unload this desire of mine at all costs to anybody else? And that's where many of us right, can turn to masturbation, pornography, the one-night hookup, whatever. But that's also why many of us like, have been sexually taken advantage of and used. But here's the tension like, I, I feel even as I say that, is your sexual desire is wonderful. It's wonderful. Dare I say, like, the desire to have sex is even godly. Oh my gosh, Presbyterian minister, I just said that. Defrock me. It's godly, the, the desire to have sex. In Genesis 2, after God creates Eve, the first command he gives Adam and Eve is literally, go do it. Go get it on. It's not go pray, but rather be fruitful and multiply. Right? In other words, the desire to have sex is literally woven into like who I am and who you are as a, as a person. It's wonderful and godly. And so we're, like, where's the disconnect? Why are there so many competing narratives out there in regards to sex and sexuality? In other words, like where can, where can I make sense of my sexuality? Where is it going to like make sense? And a lot of people will say, hey, it makes sense over here. I'm going to suggest tonight that the Bible's view of sex and sexuality is the most beautiful, it's the most compelling, and it's the most life-giving version out there. I'm going to argue this point by, by first talking about the confusion around sex, second, talking about the purpose of sex, and then thirdly, concluding by, by talking about sexual healing. Not, not the Marvin Gaye kind, but just healing when it comes to sex. Some of y'all got that. Um, so three points, sexual confusion, sexual purpose, sexual healing. <laughs> first, sexual confusion. Um, I think sex is first and foremost confusing, right? Because we all have different definitions for it. The reason I know this is like because I grabbed coffee with you. <laughs> Robert, we hooked up. I'm like, oh, well, like, what's that mean? Y'all made out, y'all got handsy. There were naked bodies. I don't know. Like, what, what happened? And you're like, oh, no, no, no. Oh, my gosh, no. Like, we didn't have sex. Things just got, like, you know, like a little hot and steamy. <laughs> and what's funny is I'm still like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, but here's what I assume you tell me when you tell me this, right? And I assume this because, like, this was my opinion in college, too. Like, I assume that most of y'all have a definition for sex that is, like, strictly, literally reserved for penetration. And I should have warned y'all, it's going to be PG-13 up in here tonight. I hope that wasn't too crude. Right? So, like, stuff you do with your hands, your mouth, your bodies, as long as it's not penetration, is considered just hooking up. Like, but not sex. I don't, know where, I don't know where this idea came from, uh, right? It's probably different for different people. Um, but, like, there's a problem here if you define sex this narrowly. 
right? It reduces what you're doing with naked body parts being in like a specific place. Um, like think about the craziness of that for a second, right? You can be doing every single thing you would be doing in sex. As long as your clothes are on, it's not sex. Clothes off, sex. Clothes on, no sex. All right, a basic Google definition search for sex. I, I Googled that. Should probably tell my wife I Googled that. Um, right, it says, it refers to sex as, as sexual activity, including sexual intercourse, right? Like meaning even within a secular framework, there's more to sex than sexual intercourse. Jesus, right? I just went the secular route. Jesus confirms this too in Matthew 5, 28, when he mentions that, you know, most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, he mentions that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, right? Jesus is saying when you lustfully intend, whether like with clothes or without clothes, to have sex with someone who's not your spouse, it's adultery. It's, it's a violation of the seventh commandment. It's crazy, like, who can perfectly do what Jesus is saying? Right? But, like, that's his point. No one. We're all sexual sinners. Remember, like, that's kind of the thesis tonight. So when we try to reduce sex to only being about naked body parts being in, like, specific places, what we're really trying to do is, is minimize the extent of our sexual sin. It's damage control. Right? We're trying to say, hey, this happened... It's not really that bad, though. Like, we live in the 21st century. Everybody does it. Chill out, you prude. And so why does Jesus then come along and say, yes, actually, like, actually really is that bad? He does it because to Jesus, and what you see throughout the Bible, is this view that your body matters. Your body matters. And by way of implication, right, what you do with your body matters. It isn't nothing. And so if you look at our text tonight, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, uh, I realize we're diving straight into the middle of a, like a letter. Um, and so just some context for you. The Apostle Paul is writing to this like sexually crazy church in Corinth. Um, maybe you've come in here tonight, right, with the view that Christians are prudes. The Bible doesn't really get sex. We're so modern now. We get sex more than they did. Uh, but let me tell you, like, in a lot of ways that the ancients were a lot more obsessed with sex than we are in a lot of ways. Um, for instance, I know a lot of people, some of you guys in here went to Greece with us like a month ago at this point. Crazy. Um, students can confirm this. Like, one of the two temples in the, in the city of Corinth was devoted to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Her temple, like, stood way up on top of this hill, the Acre Corinth. And how these Corinthians would worship Aphrodite was that they partook in cult prostitution. Like, they literally had sex with men and women whose job it was to, like, serve in the temple of Aphrodite. And when you were having sex with one of these cult prostitutes, you were worshiping the goddess of love. All right? As a result, sex was everywhere in Corinth. Uh, we went to, like, some museum and um, there were just, like, penises everywhere. Um, Oh, that's an okay word to use in a sermon. Um, it's a body part. But, um, right, like it was Las Vegas on steroids. And you see this even with the Christians too. This isn't like, ooh, the big bad boogeyman, non-Christians. Like this was too true of the Christians. Literally a chapter earlier in chapter five, 
Paul's having to uh, like address the church and what they should do with a man who's having sex with his stepmom. Right? That's why when we get to our text tonight in chapter 6, we see Paul like, addressing two main problems that the Corinthians actually, like two main views they had about sex. The first is a, a platonic view of sex, right? I'm not talking about how you use the word platonic. I'm talking about like literally the, the philosophy of Plato. You know, this whole idea that like the body is bad, matter is bad, the soul is imprisoned by the body. Therefore, sexuality is dirty and a bad thing because it involves bodies and, and physicality. I bet that sounds kind of familiar to some of y'all. Right. On the other hand, there was this view of sexuality that came from the mystery re- religions, right? Like the worship of a- Aphrodite, where sex is viewed as, as like this appetite to be fulfilled. And especially if you were like a wealthy man, you could fulfill it whenever you felt like it. Seriously, whenever you felt like it. No different than being hungry and just eating a snack. And again, maybe to some of y'all that, that sounds familiar. And here's the thing. Paul is saying that both views of sex are are wrong. He's saying that we are neither to despise sex nor worship it. Right? To despise sex is is to see sex as like this dirty, messed up thing that we somehow like have to do. Right? And to worship sex is to simply let our instincts do whatever they want to do. Um, And so like where is Paul getting this logic on sex? How can he say these views are wrong? Look with me uh, again specifically at verses 14 and 15. He says, And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. It's a different translation. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. End quote. The first thing that's implied in these two verses is that if the body is bad, if the material is bad, if sex is somehow like dirty because it's physical, then what does it mean that God himself literally took on a physical body and volunteered to live in the physicality of our world? Right? I think it means that the material world, your body and like specific body parts mean a significant amount to God. Right? We'll see in the very next chapter, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, that Paul commands husbands and wives to have sex with each other. Like, he commands it. He literally tells them like to get after it, hop on it, get jiggy with it, whatever. <laughs> Lust Paul said, get jiggy with it. That's where, that's where Will Smith got it. He, he got it from, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. Why would God command something in his word if he thought it was dirty and defiling? Hopefully that's rhetorical. Right? He wouldn't. He absolutely wouldn't. And what this means is if you grew up in a church that never talked about sex, and when they did, you know, they talked about sex, it was all in the negative. Don't have sex before you're married. Don't masturbate. If you have sex the wrong time with the wrong person, you'll get an STD. This was like the only posture your church had towards sex. That was somehow like a landmine to avoid altogether. This is you. Please hear me. Your desire for sex is wonderful. 
God literally invented sex. He loves sex. It's ultimately a picture of, of his relationship with himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the perfect union that is there within the Godhead. There's a love shared within the Trinity that is so blissful, so intimate, so enraptured that God gives us a little glimpse of what that's like in sex. Sex is a little glimpse, not only of how much love that is shared within the Trinity, right? In perfect union with one another, but it's also, it's also a little glimpse of how much God in Jesus Christ, through the union of faith, delights in you and adores you. Uh, I mentioned Richie Sessions earlier. He's the campus minister at Vanderbilt with RUF. Listen to what he says. He says, The ecstasy and joy of sex was created by God as a foretaste of the amazing intimacy and closure we will enjoy with God. Did y'all hear that? The ecstasy and joy of sex was created by God as a foretaste the amazing intimacy and closure we will enjoy with God, right? He's saying that someday, if your faith is in Jesus, when we meet him face to face, we will ultimately know what sex was all about. And if what I said, like, somehow sounds blasphemous or scary to you, you think sex is dirty. I want you to see, it is this great mystery of love, Sex can ultimately like, be made sense of because of what we find in the Bible. Like, you won't find an ancient document with a higher view of sex. For goodness sake, read Song of Solomon. Like, Hebrew translators literally wimp out when it comes to what's going on in Song of Solomon. Right? There's like, detailed language about like, both a man and a woman's like, body parts and what they're doing and how it feels. Like, literally go read it. It's in your Bible. Okay, so sex isn't dirty. But the second thing that's implied in those two verses, 14 and 15, is that the Lord Jesus in his resurrected physical body conquered the greatest power of all, right? Death itself. We're going to celebrate that on Easter. Therefore, like all authority on heaven and earth has, has rightfully been given to him. And if this is true, if you're going to roll with that assumption for the moment, if he actually got up from the grave on the third day, then your body belongs to him. That's why um, oftentimes I'll get, I'll get questions about, hey, what does RUF believe about this, about that? And it's oftentimes in reference to like sexuality and sex. And I go, we believe that Jesus got up from the dead. Because if Jesus got up from the dead, then he has all the authority over your body. Whatever kind of sexuality like is your preference. Verses 19 and 20, right? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Right? Paul's saying that we can't treat our instincts like they are God. Just because you have a particular instinct, that doesn't mean you have, like, a right to act on it. It's not your body. It's not your body anymore. This is no different than like when in verse 13, right, it warns us that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Verse 18 says that sexual immorality is so serious, it's so detrimental to the holistic flourishing of a person that we must flee it at all costs. 
you might be thinking like, whoa, Robert, what happened to like that? Sex is beautiful. Sex is a great mystery of love. You're getting all serious on me now. Let's go back to talking about, you know, the nice stuff. And what, what I want you to see is that like logically, these two things have to go together. They go hand in hand. Sex can't be this awesome, amazing, beautiful thing that the Bible puts forward and simultaneously be used as something like that was never intended to be used for. Um, here's an example for you, right? Like your iPhone is awesome. If you don't have an iPhone, shame, shame. Uh, <laughs> but your iPhone's awesome, right? Um, amazing and awesome right because it was made to text and instagram and whatever you guys do on your iphones um it's not so awesome and amazing if you use it as a hammer don't do that <laughs> same thing with sex right within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman it's safe and beautiful and exhilarating outside of marriage sex is a monstrosity I'll repeat that one more time. Outside of marriage, sex is a monstrosity. Why? Because the power and beauty and mystery of it is used in a way that it was never intended to be used. It's like hammering a nail with an iPhone. Our family loves making fires. We're a bunch of pyros. Like, seriously, it's probably bad. We have a fire pit in our backyard. We'd love to have you guys over. A lot of you guys have been there. If you've been over to our house, right, and we've kind of like sat around and made s'mores, like it's a blast. We'll put on like one of Esme or Eleanor's playlists. Like it's awesome. It's rocking. Um, it's a blast because the fire is warm, right? It's radiant. It's fascinating to look at. You guys ever like looked at fire? It's like, I don't know. I feel hypnotized. Um, right? It's got such incredible power to it that when it's used like appropriately, it brings life. Now, I want you to imagine, like, we wheel in my fire pit and put it in the middle of, like, the living room where my coffee table is currently, right? And we light her up, and we start sitting around, and we're making s'mores again. What, what do you think happens? Like, incredible devastating damage. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying sexual sin is any worse than any other sin. I'm not. What I am saying is that because sex is so close to the center of reality, sin has like really affected it. It's really twisted it. So sexual sin is sin that like stains every part of our being. Um, right? That's, the, that's why the idea that like it's just kind of an appetite that needs to be addressed couldn't be further from the truth. Sin has obviously affected our relationship with food. You know, like that's very obvious. I have... Um, inappropriate. I have an inappropriate relationship with no tie. Like, I just do. It's, it's, it's inappropriate. <laughs> but the difference between appetite for food and appetite for sex is, is this. Food is an inanimate object. It's an inanimate object. There you go. You see the difference? Like, sex is with another human in God's image. It's sacred. So you can't follow your instincts or appetites because your instincts and appetites are, are disordered. Sin has disordered them. And the, the idea that like you can kind of just somehow give your sexual desires their way, whatever they may be, whatever they kind of want, 
When you do that, you actually never get what you want. It's not ultimately satisfying. Gosh, I would love to share with y'all some more of my story of how I came to faith in Jesus Christ in college. A lot of it involves, <laughs> involves this. Maybe I won't podcast. Shouldn't have said that. Why? But like, wh- why is this true? For the same reason that like camping underneath a sign that says 50 miles to New York City is kind of lame, right? Like it's not the same thing as going to New York City. Sex is a sign that points to a greater reality. It isn't and can't be the reality that you're ultimately made for. That's why you can't have sex with hundreds of people. And you still feel like there's got to be more. So if that's not the purpose of sex, then like, what is the purpose, Robert? Really quickly, really quickly, three purposes to sex, right? The first purpose might be obvious. We're just going to tackle the obvious. Procreation. I got two kids, yay. Um, I've had sex twice. Um, Again, Genesis 2 is crazy. Be fruitful and multiply. Literally, like, have sex and other images of God will be created. And so I want you to, like, put on your theology hats again with me real quick, right? Procreation only makes sense within a Christian worldview. Like, think about it. A triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who's always existed in perfect love for each other. The Son eternally proceeding out of the Father, the Spirit proceeding out of the Son and the Father. Right? It was out of love in this proceeding that crea- like human beings were created, that the world was created. And so it would logically flow that human beings who are made in the image of this triune God would also be able to create other human beings out of love. One of the purposes to sex is procreation because procreation is a theological reality that bears witness to divine love. I think maybe Bruno Mars was right when he's saying, yeah, your sex takes me to paradise. Yeah, your sex takes me to paradise. Sex should take us to paradise because it should lead us back to the love in which we were created. Right? Both by God, but also by our parents. In other words, right, it should take us to the destination. It should take us to New York City and not just like as this miscellaneous campsite underneath a road sign. Okay, purpose number two, recreation. Dare I say, sex is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to feel good. At the risk of sounding crude, let the tension build a little bit. (laughs) Have you ever thought about like, why your genitals have so many nerve endings down there? That was weird to say. Um, <laughs> but like seriously, seriously, God's command, be fruitful, multiply. It could have been just like some mechanical thing that you do, right, to pragmatically carry on the species, right? Simply something you need to like go get done. But we see and like maybe we've experienced that like it's not merely mechanical, supposed to feel good. All right, and here's the thing. It feels good outside of marriage. It also feels good inside marriage. I feel like I've heard some churches say like this thing of like, it doesn't feel as good. It feels good outside of marriage. Right? But the euphoria of sex is so powerful 
It's so beautiful and central to our humanity that the effects of sex go way beyond the physical. Right, which leads me to my last purpose of sex, which is union. Right, when you have sex, you are covenanting. Remember that word from last week? Right, you are committing your body to another person. Right, this obviously gets inconsistent and confusing really quickly when there's any sex outside of marriage. Right, that's because what's being communicated with sex outside of marriage is, I commit to you my body, but not my bank account. I commit to you my body, but not my future. I commit to you my body, but not my time. I commit to you my body, but not my deepest, darkest secrets. I commit to you my body, but I'm not going to legally bind myself to you. So if something happens, then I'm off. Right, friends, this is why if you've ever hooked up with someone and he or she like, doesn't text you back, it feels like a betrayal. It feels like a betrayal because it is a betrayal. The same goes for having sex in a dating relationship and you break up. And you feel like you never knew the person. Why? Because the person you knew in the dating relationship was cashing checks with their bodies that they didn't want to with the rest of their life. It's a little bit of this going on. So when y'all break up, right, like it feels like this divorce. Because honestly, it is. Christian author Jackie Hill Perry She's awesome. Follow her on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you have social media. She tweeted this literally Sunday night. She said, sex is all about mystery, or it should be. What happens to and with the body when it becomes one with another should, uh, should progressively be unveiled in covenantal safety. Pornography and fornication, however, exposes what's meant to be hidden, turning the sacred into something ordinary. This is why married sex is the best. I can say it. I've been married almost six years now. Married sex is the best. You're safe to commit your body because someone else has committed their life, their heart, their time, their money, their everything to you. You're free to be naked and unashamed. Uh, Jackie O'Perry continues by saying, right, one joy in marriage is being able to discover the mystery of sex with your person, including discovering one another's bodies. Learning one thing, learning one another is a thing. And it's a beautiful thing at that. And continual, our bodies will change, so we will always be adjusting and learning how to love and receive it differently than before. In other words, sex and marriage better helps us like, understand the mystery of the gospel. That we are intricately known and more loved than we could ever imagine. Tim Keller, in his, in his book, Me of Marriage, Tim Keller writes, sex is an emotional commitment apparatus. Right? Note, like, he didn't say anything about the physicality of sex. That's assumed. Sex is emotional, psychological, moral, spiritual glue that unites two people to one another. It is a tool given to you by God to help you keep your commitment to the other person that you've pledged your life to. And y'all... It is the same thing that happens when you take the Lord's Supper in church. You guys have probably never thought about this. If you are in relationship with Jesus, if you are wed to him, if you are bound to him in marriage, if you are the bride, the church, right, and Jesus has come after you and, and he has wed you to himself, one of the ways you renew your covenant with him 
Every week at Christ Church, we, we take the Lord's Supper. You renew your covenant with him by taking the Lord's Supper, by feasting upon him, by soaking in all the love that he has for you. That's weird and graphic. Like, that is the same thing that happens in sex. You've made a public, what did I say last week? Public permanent promise to one another. Right? And you consummate that promise with sex. And then you come back again and again. Maybe you do it every day if you're married. Maybe not. But, like, that's, right, that's the glue that keeps you to one another. In the same way, like, that's why the Lord's Supper is awesome. Strengthens your faith. It keeps you to Jesus. Right? Until you've sworn that you won't leave this other person until you die. Until death do us part. Death. You can't commit yourself to her in sex. You just can't. Why? Am I just one of those preachers on the diagram now? Don't I have sex before marriage? Why can't you commit yourself to her in marriage? Because she's not yours. She doesn't belong to you. You're actually stealing something that is not yours. That's literally what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, right? That the body of a wife is her husband's, and the body of a husband is his wife's. Right? It doesn't matter that she isn't married now, like in this present moment. She still isn't yours. Right? Like if you want to make her yours, then like get married. The purpose of sex, right? There's so much there, guys. Uh, but where do we go from here? And if you're like me, I'm hearing what I'm saying. I'm thinking, well, man, I have royally screwed up. Right? That's not how I view sex. That's not how I use sex. And if that's you, then let's talk. I would love to grab coffee. Seriously, I know this talk might rub a few of y'all the wrong way. Um, but my last point, sexual healing. Where can we find sexual healing? Right? I know some of y'all have had things done to you sexually. And you've done things sexually that like, you can't even think or talk about. And you can't even imagine Jesus wanting anything to do with it either. Right? So, some of you find yourself in, in like the same rut tonight. You looked at porn already for like the third or fourth time this week. And as much as you try to like read your Bible, you join a ministry like RUF, right? You're trying to seek accountability. Like you can't stop. The idea of Jesus sounds nice, but there's no weight or power to his gospel that can break your addictions. I mean, others of you are, are like horrified at your own thoughts. You get these fixations, sexual fantasies, that if anybody else like knew an inkling of your desire, game over. And if you think of yourself as a pervert, then who knows what Jesus thinks of you. I'm going to end um, by reading a passage to you from Zechariah 3, everybody's favorite book of the Bible. Now, it's, a, it's a book way at the end of your Old Testaments. So Zechariah 3 is how it starts off. It says, Joshua the high priest is the holiest man in the country in the holiest place. Joshua the high priest stood before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, which literally means accuser, was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothes, uh, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy gar garments from him. 
And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So he put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you know what the Hebrew word there is for, uh, for filthy garments? Poop. Poop. Excrement. So the image that you have here is, is Joshua the high priest. This holy man, he's before God covered in crap. It's all over him. And Satan is just like sitting there pointing out the obvious. He's filthy. And there's no way he could ever like make himself clean enough to stand in the presence of God. To be where he is right now. His guilt has covered him head to toe. And it's a picture of every single one of us. And it's right then, wow, he's covered in this crap, the mess of his own sin. The angel says, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. The guilt and shame from sexual sin so like viscerally seeps into the core of our very beings like it, it makes us feel filthy it makes us feel like there's no coming back from what happened right we are covered in the mess of maybe a failed dating relationship a hookup an addiction like fantasies like, like, there is no way I can go to church enough. There's no way I can read my Bible enough. There's no way I can hurt myself enough. That is going to clean up how filthy I feel. And the devil stands there right next to us as we stand in the presence of God. And he says, I know what you did. You're such a loser. I know what you want to do. You're such a pervert. You call yourself a Christian? Are you kidding me? And between the guilt of your own mess and the accusation you hear from Satan himself, there is no escaping the pit of despair that you feel. Your friends can't do anything. Your piety can't do anything. Shopping, school, sports, none of it can do anything to save you from the pit of despair. Who feels this time? God has to clothe you. God has to clothe you with pure vestments. God has to put a clean turban on your head. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can be placed upon your conscience to free you. Only the blood of Jesus has the power to cleanse the guilt from your sexual sin. It is the blood of Jesus that can erase the sexual sin that has been written in Sharpie upon your life. The blood of Jesus covers your filth. Why? Why? Because the cross, the cross is God taking your filth and putting it on Jesus. The cross is God taking your, the perfect righteousness of Jesus who never sinned sexually and imputing it to you. But that's not fair, Robert. Yeah, I know it's not fair. It's the gospel of grace. One last thing and I promise I'll end on this. Why do you think they put a clean turban on his head? Seems like kind of what people in the Middle East do. You ever thought about that? Why do they put a clean turban on his head? It didn't have to say that, right? 
pure vestments like would have done this trick. We would have gotten the idea, covered head to toe, pure vestments. Why does it mention a clean turban? It's because it's a picture of God clothing the very place that you hold all your memories. The place where you keep all your thoughts and desires and fixations. God comes in and he wraps your head with a clean turban. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or how much you did it, no matter the fantasy, there's nothing that he does not remove by making you clean through the blood of Jesus. There's nothing. Meaning that you can bring every single one of your sins to Jesus tonight. You can bring your filthy garments. Actually, that is the only requirement to come to Jesus, actually, is that you would have filthy garments. And you can put the pure vestments that he has given to you on. You can put on the clean turban. He restores you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for 